Hello, hello. Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum and a member of the Drum Click Podcast Network. Today, we have Mike Edison, the author of the book Sympathy for the Drummer, Why Charlie Watts Matters, on the show to talk about the quintessential Charlie recordings that defined him as a drummer. I go a little more in depth as to what that actually means at the top of our conversation, but I want to say right here and right now, obviously this is subjective, but I knew Mike would nail it, and with his extensive, and not to use that term lightly, knowledge of Charlie's career and style, I think this is a great place to start if you want to dig a little deeper into one of the greatest to ever do it. I also must give a big fat shout out to our mutual friend Bart Vanderzee of Drum History Podcast for introducing me to Mike. So please go check out their interviews on Drum History's feed because those conversations tackle the treasure trove that is Charlie's career from a totally different angle. I also implore you to refrain from skipping through any of the musical clips in this one. I play some of these songs for a lot longer than usual, but it's because you really have to hear the story that Charlie tells with his drumming. The picks are really great. Mike's awesome, so you won't be disappointed. Okay, cheers. The format of this show, Big Fat Five, is that I, the usual format is I bring on uh, the world's best drummers, my favorite drummers, to dissect their top five influences. And so reading your book is essentially like going down the big fat million of Charlie <laughs> Watts. Um, and you bring up drummers that honestly, I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard of. Um, and you talk about in the book that most people haven't, they're unsung heroes, the Earl Phillips, the Fred Belows, um, all those guys. And so going in that direction how and why did your fascination with charlie watts begin why why this book why did you write this book well those two guys first of all earl phillips and fred below it's a shame that they're not famous i mean charlie actually said he owes his career to, to freddie below you know who played on uh a lot of chuck berry's hits but he was the chess records house drummer and earl phillips was uh not only jimmy reed's drummer and master of the impossible shuffle but played on some amazing john lee hooker tracks and some of the best weirdest most hypnotic uh, howlin wolf tracks and that's uh that's how you learn to do it you know you can't you know you, you can't teach this shit you just can't you gotta you gotta live with it you gotta breathe it and that's uh you know mick and keith and brian jones at the time sitting charlie down and say listen to this and charlie being smart enough to say well th this is jazz you know, maybe somebody who was a snob would say, oh, this stuff is blues, it's easy to play, which has become a big problem if you've, you know, ever gone down to your local bar to see the blues band and they don't swing and they don't shuffle and it gets, you know, you know, like sound like a Michelob commercial or like a, you know, or something and not, you know, uh, I always say, remember, it's the Rolling Stones, not the Rocking Stones. That's very important. The roll part is very uh, important. And to your question of how I got to write this book or why I wrote this book, people always say, Mike, you know, how long did it take you to write this book? And I always say 45 years, you know, because it started when I started playing the drums and I started listening to Charlie Watts and saying, you know, you know, holy cow, there's really something to this. There's a mojo here. There's this indefinable thing that, you know, I'm playing along to Black Sabbath and I'm playing along to the Ramones and all these other things that I started out playing along to Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. And these are things I could learn. But the Charlie Watts thing was like, 
that untouchable thing. You could only approach it. You could never actually touch it. You know, uh, there was always a hi hat opening up at some point, and it was very um, counterintuitive, and and it, and it totally speeds up at points. You know, it was not a he's not a metronome. That's like some weird received wisdom. You know, and you know, like people telling me that a song should end at the same tempo it begins. You know, I never heard such bullshit in my life. Of course it shouldn't, you know. Uh, you know, like we say, you don't want to make love to someone who uh, does it like a metronome. So why would you want a drummer who plays like one? Uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a repetitive motion, but there are dynamics involved. And Charlie put jazz and found spaces to put it in an art form that didn't usually afford that rock and roll, you know, where there isn't this conversation between the drummer and the rest of the band that you have in, in, in jazz. And, and there was an evolution. You know, the Charlie Watts that you hear on the early records is not the Charlie Watts that you heard in 1969, nor is that guy the same guy that was playing in 1972, who was really opening up a lot. And by 1978, he had flipped it on its head all over again. I mean, he really like grew into the band. And like I said, maybe he started out playing the drums, but by the, you know, mid late seventies, he was playing the band. Yeah, and the the reason why I was so excited to have you on, and so if I didn't already talk about this in the intro, it's kind of five quintessential Charlie Watts tracks. For, for someone who doesn't really know the Rolling Stones, doesn't know Charlie Watts, has heard his name, but it doesn't really, you know, emote a specific thing. I wanted to have you on to kind of talk about the the timeline, the overall things of what makes Charlie Charlie, and what I hear, and I'm, I'm sure this is a frustration that you share is that every other person that doesn't really know Charlie says, oh, he just lifts his right hand with the snare drum. And it's like, yes, he does that. He has done that. But if I've seen a lot of live videos, he doesn't do that every time. It's not like that's no, the only... He, and you like, start doing it till later on. And yeah. it's something that's easy to latch on to because you can see it and hear it, but there's so much more. And, you know, like I say, if you go on YouTube and you say how to play like Charlie Watts, you'll find some guy doing that thing where he lifts the stick off, you know, the hi-hat so it doesn't, you know, come down on the snare drum on the two and the four. It kind of gives a spare. But there's also like a, there's a breath in there too. It's not just the sound of the snare drum. It's, it kind of pushes them behind the beat a little bit too. There's a, you, you, you know, it's like the butterfly in Hong Kong that makes it rain in New York. You, you know, I, I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a weird trickle down on a very molecular level of what that does to the whole sound. Uh, but that's way too reductive just to say that's what Charlie Watts does. Um, so if you look on YouTube and people say, oh, look, this is what Charlie does, or yeah, okay, whatever. Um, if you go on YouTube and look how to play like Neil Peart, you wanna play like Rush, you will find 20,000 guys playing Tom Sawyer perfectly in their bedrooms because you can learn that and you can play along with it. And uh, that, that's great, you know, that, that, that's totally cool. But it's not, the Charlie Watts thing is not something that you can learn. It's only something that you could have to live with. It's, it's poetry in motion. And, you know, he's dancing back there. And uh, it's much more, they said, not only uh, counterintuitive, but it's much more, there's more improvisation in this, in what he does than, than you might think there is. Because it doesn't really come out the same time, or same way every night, especially when they were really at their peak. Absolutely. You know, I mean, Midnight Rambler could be nine minutes or 12 minutes, you know, I suppose, depending on, you know, what kind of drugs Keith was doing before the show and, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and how uh, much, you know, Mick, Mick was along for the ride. But there's a lot of jazz in that. Yeah. 
Well, let's actually just get into it. So um, the first one, and and uh, you said your choices were going to kind of maybe surprise people because you were going to talk yeah, well, a little bit later. Go ahead. Everybody can go listen to a 12-minute live version of Midnight Rambler, and I think everybody should, mm-hmm. you know? And then when they're done listening to that, they should listen to it again <laughs> because, you know, you just got to immerse yourself in this. And there's some great stuff. I think the peak for the Stones was 1972, 71 to 73, around Exile. It's captured unbelievably well in the film Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. I mean, that really is the apex of the art form. Like anybody who saw the Rolling Stones, anybody who was in a rock and roll band and saw the Stones at that point probably went home crying, you know, <laughs> rethinking just what the fuck they were doing and maybe they should just hang it up because it was that good. It's very intimidating how good they are. Uh, what I didn't do was pick out Midnight Rambler, which you talk about because it's got a lot of tempo changes and the shuffle switches to a straight beat and it's very cool. Uh, and some of my other favorite tracks and Obviously, Brown Sugar is a great Charlie track, uh, and and, there, and there's lots of stuff. I figured everybody can go listen to Monkey Man. Everybody's heard it. Everybody knows those great loping fills and intros. So I started uh, in an odd place. I started with a live version of Satisfaction, which I'm going to posit is the beginning of punk rock, uh, at least as far as it approaches the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are lots of things that you could say were punk rock before, Link Ray or even Eddie Cochran or, you know, um, some psychedelic surf band or garage bands in the 60s that were doing it. But this is just unrelentless aggressiveness and pounding and it's a signal shift it's not like the studio version uh it's extremely aggressive it's 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 very very high energy and remember the point is uh not that they uh were satisfied the point is they can't can't get no satisfaction uh because that that's the important part you know it's uh it's the moment before satisfaction that's interesting and that's <laughs> i love that it's all about uh, well, let's just play a little bit of it. And so, yes, this is from a uh, live from Got It Live, if you want it. And it's from 1966. So uh, let me just play. I mean, again, it's just relentless the whole time. So I'm just yeah, going to play the first yeah, 30, 40 seconds of it. It's uh, he's making a statement, I would say. And, you know, it's another kind of myth about Charlie Watts. He's this like, you know, gentleman's gentleman, Charlie Watts and an urbane jazz drummer. And here he is stomping the living shit out of his drums. Uh, I mean, nobody hitting him harder than that. And people forget. I mean, now the Rolling Stones are a legacy band or, you know, it's kind of safe. The revolution is over. You know, I mean, they're probably selling as much ice cream at these shows as they are, you know, beer. Uh, But at a time. The Rolling Stones were, you know, in the same league as Led Zeppelin and The Who at their most hard rocking. You know, they were a hard rock band. They were considered, you know, dangerous. They were, you know, the poster boys for sex and drugs and hard rock. And yes, of course, they are a blues band and they play R&B in the old style. But uh, they were, yeah, they were playing the same circuit as Led Zeppelin. And if you listen to it's it's hard rock, you know, 
I mean, it's it's harder rock than Kiss or Van Halen. I mean, it's hard rock. Yeah. Uh, rock and roll. And I'm sure if you see videos of that, he's playing hard, but he's not like there's nowadays you see people playing drums. And I'll say I'll, I'll watch videos of myself playing sometimes where you play so hard that you get diminished returns. Mm-hmm. He is still such a, a, a good drummer that him playing hard is still soft enough to where he gets a good sound out of everything. You know, yeah. he he's not just bashing for the sake of bashing. And so it's a lot of uh, you can go to school just watching him play drums. Well, same thing about John Bonham, too. I mean, as heavy as he was, the, the amount of control and discipline that he had is absolutely incredible. I mean, and he really knew how to do the same thing, how to how to push a song right to the point without going over it. One thing I love about Led Zeppelin is even when they're at their like most rockingest, they never sound like they're in a hurry. They never sound like they're in a rush to you know, get to the finish line. There, it really is like this. There's, there's a push and sometimes there's a pull too, just before the line. And that's the great metaphor for drumming. You know, I always say it's it's about anticipation, not penetration. That's about, you know, that's that's, you know, it's all about sex. The, the role part is more important than the rock part. The role part is sex. The rock part is what horny teenagers do. And that is they climax on the first note. and They got no place left, left to go, you know? Yeah. You know, Metallica rocks, the Rolling Stones roll. And you need both parts to make make this this thing happen, you know? Uh, like I say, you know, hydrogen is pretty cool. Oxygen's pretty cool. But you put them together and you can go swimming. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, that it's you know, it's the yeah. it's the parts being greater than the whole. Uh yeah, Charlie's got a lot of control. And the great the great ones always do. You push it up to the up to the edge, you know, because that's that's the exciting part. And he does speed up. Oh my God! There's not a single song in their catalog that that ends at the same tempo that it starts. You know, because he knows how to push it through the choruses or or through the solo. He knows how to put on the gas when he needs to. Yeah, it's very important. You know, uh, this idea that just you know the, the grids destroyed everything. You know, the click track. You know, it's like the click track and the wireless microphone. These are the things that have ruined rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to number two, and uh, I'm sure you have the list in front of you. Um, so maybe uh, you I think can it's just respectable. Yep, respectable, uh, yep. Well, this is cool because so if, if, if Satisfaction is like nascent punk rock, this is like kind of, okay, 1965, and it's like really, really trying to you know, pu- push it all through the floor. By 78, they were responding to like actual punk rock, you know, you know such as that it was, meaning the Sex Pistols and, and, and the Damned and the Buzzcocks and the Ramones and everyone else saying, you know, okay, you guys are over the hill, you know, whatever, you know, you're bloated and, you know, you're, you know, you're all a bunch of cokeheads flying around in your jets and, you know, you know, and, and it's over. You guys are dinosaurs, pack it up. And their response was some girls and they had something to prove, you know, I think definitely in 1975 when they were doing that arena tour, uh, you know, it was like Ghost Said Soup, but it's only rock and roll. There was definitely something missing. You know, it was a little, yeah, you know, Keith was like definitely in Dopesville. Mick was, you know, falling in love with himself for the 45th time and, you know, and losing sight of what this was all about. But by 1978, they came out and said, let's be the greatest rock and roll band in the world, you know, and show everybody what we really got. And Some Girls, great record. Also, I mean, just try playing along with what comes down or respectable with the song Some Girls, which is very filthy, uh, you know, as dirty and filthy as anything they've ever done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of loping and drums and cool fills and stuff. But this live version, again, this unrelentless, like, momentum and, and the tempo is out of control. I mean, it's just fantastic and it speeds up. And yet within this thing, there's all this, like this Charlie opening the hi-hat in the most unanticipatable parts and these kind of they're not really fills or it's kind of like connective tissue 
you know, yeah. the way he moves around. And, and, and it's just a, just a beautiful thing. I defy anybody to play along with this. Um, and again, uh, referencing the book, um, I mean, you, not that you glossed over, but you did a very condensed version just now of what, of, of entire chapters in, in your book. So, um, you, if you, if you enjoy this conversation in any way, which I guarantee all of you are, uh, grab the book. It's, uh, he goes into way more depth with all that stuff about the records that are less popular and, and kind of, I mean, you're pretty honest about things you don't like and um, things you do love. You're not just blowing smoke up their ass the whole time. No, this was not a puff piece. Yep. And, you know, when I when I sat down to write it, look, if anybody's watching. <laughs> there you go. There it is. Uh, paperback edition, which is completely sold out, by the way. Um, you know, there was no anticipating the passing of Charlie Watts, and that was a... Uh, great blow and um responding to it both emotionally and professionally has been been a real challenge um and the book sold out i mean it was already doing well it had really uh gotten a great reception but obviously suddenly uh charlie watts was in the news and i found myself on the bbc and and, and you know and all, all these news outlets and new york times and all these things um which is very satisfying of course that people are paying attention mm-hmm. and i saw my myself plagiarized i don't know how many fucking times <laughs> we'll call it casual plagiarism people kind of writing their obituaries which read like book reports of sympathy for the drummer you yeah. know uh which is both irritating and flattering i suppose um so but the book's coming back in print so if you're looking for the book and you can't find it i guarantee it'll be available uh next week or very very soon anyway they are uh some supply chain uh shortages and stuff in these crazy times yeah uh, absolutely living. but but yeah i don't pull punches and if you knew my other work you, you know that about me i did not write this because i want to be friends with the rolling stones mm-hmm. that was not my goal and i don't think musicians write about music enough I, i'm very annoyed by the music press in general because they tend to be personality pieces and not actually about music mm. and when musicians do write they tend to be these memoirs and if i hear one more baby boomer telling me how they saw elvis on tv and i had to start a band the next day or the beatles rather you know i saw the beatles maybe that's post office next year you know oh my god i saw the beatles on tv and i had to run out and you know and daddy and mommy bought me a guitar it's like you know okay bob seeger i've heard this story before you know uh i get it i don't really want to i thought i want to read i want to read about music by people who understand music who really understand it and can shine some light on it in a way that you know a civilian can't but it also in a way that a non-musician can read it and enjoy it. It's really important because the more we understand it as a non-musician to people who are non-musicians, the better you're going to get it. I think Keith Richards did a pretty good job in his book of touching the music and talking about how he came across his open tuning and his approach without alienating people who were there for the sex and the drugs. I mean, 100%. I think pretty, pretty great like that. And I, that's why I can't, and I'll say it right now, I can't stand bo- uh, movies like Bohemian Rhapsody. It's like you can't make a movie about a band by the band you it has to be from an outside perspective or someone that knows them but just isn't trying to make them all look good uh, yeah, or a certain it's, it's just uh i hate that stuff because yeah, these are advertisements i mean you know even you know i mean the johnny cash biopic was i mean it's, it's a bit warts and all but you know it has the same scene that i saw the jim morrison movie and the same scene i see in every one of these movies where we're sitting around and all of a sudden dong 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 it's like that's a hit that's yeah. a hit as if that's, that's all the way right. anything yeah. happened. It's like, hey, here's this thing I'm, I'm working on. It's called a little thing called Light My Fire. And, you know, five minutes later, it's on the radio. It's not the way these things happen. You know, there's so much work involved in being a great rock and roll band. And the Rolling Stones, you know, that's why they became the greatest, because of this obsessiveness 
over the old forms, over the blues and getting these things right. And, you know, so many people don't do their homework. Oh, shit, man. I took so much heat for my comments about the doors in, in sympathy for the drummer, you know, because, listen, for whatever great things the doors have done or were capable of doing, playing Bo Diddley is not one of them. It's, it doesn't swing, it's rock without the roll, they sound like a bar band, and what it does is it's given permission for other bands to skip all the steps and just do these kind of sloppy white boy versions of great blues songs and think somehow this is okay, and you know what, it's not okay. I mean, fine, whatever, I mean, if you have, people are coming out and drinking beer and you're all having a good time, who, who am I to stop you? But there's a real difference between hearing the Rolling Stones play the blues and Charlie Watts play that shuffle and some guy who thought it was easy and, you know, here, here I am, like, really going to step it up. But a lot of those cats who are playing, you know, 2112 in their bedrooms and you know, Tom Sawyer, you know, which, which is its own level of difficulty, but... I know guys like this. I grew up with guys like this. This is why I wrote this book, because those guys say, come on over my house, and he'd play like this, like, unbelievable complex thing, you know, 17 over 8, and it shifted every fucking five measures. But he would trip over himself trying to play a simple punk rock beat or a Motown beat or a shuffle. Couldn't do it. Didn't swing. You listen to the last Rolling Stones uh, record, Blue and Lonesome, the record of blues covers, it's impossible to play along with because the shuffles are just, they're just so organic. And you just gotta, it's much looser than anything. You know, you just gotta forget about counting. You just gotta like put yourself into it, heart and soul, and, and, and embrace the Zen. Uh, you know, like playing with those old Jimmy Reed records. It's very, very difficult. Much harder, in fact, I, I think, than trying to play Sing, Sing, Sing you know, or, or some of these things, which you, which are great, but you can learn them. The other things, you know, you just have to really, and you got to check your ego at the door is the other thing, you know, to, you know, when you play these things, you know, you know, it ain't, ain't about you, drummer, man. It's really about the band and it's about the song and it's about the people in front of the stage. I love it. I love it. And so we are going to get to um, a song. Um, <laughs> no, we are going to get to a song from Blues, uh, Blue and Lonesome, but let's, let's get to Respectable Live, which uh, we are talking about. Um, yeah, from 1978, live. Now we're respected in society. We don't worry about the things that we used to be. We're talking heroin with the president. Cause it's a problem, sir. Yeah, you could definitely hear the uh, how much fun he has with the hi hat. I mean, not just yeah. the oh, open on the two and four, but like just how I'll say inconsistent, but in in a complimentary way. Right, right. It's like and, and you know, and then turning over, and this is also where the China symbol starts entering the picture too, which is a whole other conversation, which we're gonna have, I imagine. Yeah. Um, but if you let the song go on, it gets more faster and more intense. And when they really open it up during the guitar solos. Um, I mean, it's just really the drums are carrying, carrying. I mean, everybody, it's everybody working as a machine, but the drums are the engine of this machine. It's undeniable. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I love The Clash and I am a big, really big Sex Pistols fan. I love that Sex Pistols record. And, uh, you know, and the Ramones, I think I'm the only person uh, to ever call them virtuosos in sympathy for the drummer, you know? Like, yeah, you try to play along like that, okay? You know, like, like really going to play eighth notes on the hat, like, like that for like, you know, an hour and 10 minutes at that tempo and not play any fills at that kind of discipline and keep it swinging and, and vibrate at exactly the same frequency with three other guys 
You know, like I said, I've seen a million people try to do it, but I've only seen one band good enough to really do it. You know, uh, you know, it, it's it's tough stuff. Uh, but you know, it's a lot of people don't want to hear that. Yeah, I'm coming for your roto toms. <laughs> <laughs> when you talked about it just now, and you've also you talk about it in the book a lot, is that through all the different uh, inner turmoils with with the band, with Keith not wanting to show up, Mick being in love with himself, um, <laughs> and then not even being in the same room for records, at the, you know, never recording at the same time. Hey, y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was gonna be or if it was gonna be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye you always knew it was the Rolling Stones because Charlie was this through line throughout the whole thing. He was always Charlie. And even when the, it, the uh, parts of the records didn't sound like the Rolling Stones or sounded different, you're like, yeah, but it's, Charlie's there. He always shows up and he just keeps it. He's, he's the constant. Yeah, I feel bad now. I guess Mick kind of took it on the chin in this book a little bit. <laughs> um, you, you know, I mean, I've heard that it's gone over very well in Rolling Stone circles. My, my, my guy behind the castle walls tells me everybody is A-OK with this. And I don't think I've said anything that Mick hasn't already heard uh, before. But, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't pull any punches. And they made some, you know, really bad records. And, you know, that's what happens when Keith's working from midnight to six and, you know, and Mick's keeping bankers hours and they're not in the studio at the same time. And they're erasing each other's parts because they're in this, like, odd lover's quarrel. And, you know, and Keith's on and off the drugs and, you know, and uh, Mick's got this idea that he wants to make this commercial record because he really wants to be on the pop charts. And that's why he goes and makes these solo records, which just pisses everybody off because he thinks he should be David Bowie or Michael Jackson. And somehow, you know, he can do this without, I mean, he's been gifted with the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And yet he chooses to go play with what Keith called the schmuck and balls band, you know, a bunch, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, Keith's words, not mine, you know, but like, you know, a bunch of studio guys who are all talented, but aren't the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But, uh, you know, like Dirty Works generally considered, I, I'm not sure we're up to the list. No, we're actually, I think, emotion, up to Emotional Rescue. Yep. But but Dirty Works, like we'll come to later, generally regarded as their, as their worst record because it begs the question, how do you make a Rolling Stones record without the Rolling Stones? You know, how do you make a record of a band when the band's not not there? You, you, you know, it, it's challenging. And this is what this is what they come up with. And it does sound kind of corporate and plastic. But Charlie, though, is, is there that snare drum and that little that je ne sais quoi little spark on the on the hi hat never gets away. So the next song, though, uh, is Emotional Rescue, which I think is maybe their most underrated record. One well, certainly uh, on a short list. I think it's a fantastic record from start to finish. Uh, it was the. Um, follow up to uh, some girls in some of the same sessions, you know, were involved. The drums sound amazing, very mm -hmm. organic. It sounds like five guys in a room playing this record, you know, no tricks, no synthesizer banks, uh, you know, no outside producers coming in and trying to do this or that. The uh, disco hit his emotional rescue, but also uh, uh, I think everything's uh, turning to gold was done around the same time. And uh, um, their other wonderful disco song, which I, uh, everything's turned to gold and uh, oh dance dance part one and two is on this um and, and it's fantastic i mean so you have this band that's the greatest rock and roll band in the world playing disco but it sounds like guys playing in a room this is and don't forget they were playing dance music for a long time so even though it's now called disco and the bgs have taken over shopping malls it's very on brand for them to play black dance music this is what they do and they do it very well uh they also like country music very well. I mean, they play country so great. They play it on, on uh, Let It Bleed. They play beautiful country music. They play great music on TV Shelter, uh, on a uh, Beggar's Banquet. There's some great country stuff on uh, Exile Main Street. All, this is a great country song that borders on being a rock and roll song. And if you listen to it, basically, Respectable is the same formula, just amped up, right? Like their punk rock is based in Chuck Berry and, and, and playing, and there's a connection. But anyway, I chose this song because I love the tempo. Okay. Okay. The tempo of the song is like perfection. Any faster, and you try to hot it up, and it sounds like you're rushing it. And as evidence, you can listen to their '81 tour, and there's a record of it, Still Life, where they try to play it like a fast rock and roll song, and it sounds kind of like this tossed off, you know, Rolling Stones schmata. And uh, uh, this is like this tempo is like unbelievable. He pushes it not too far but, but farther than probably the other guy would the the, the the dynamics are great the little turnarounds he does and there's a breakdown about two-thirds of the way through the song that's kind of like those breakdowns in little tna and some of these songs where it just comes down to snare drum you know and it's like whoa whoa it's like the earth kind of shifts on its axis and yet it's in its heart of hearts it's really this kind of nashville-esque country song but in the hands of charlie watts and the rolling stones it becomes something very very cool Perfect. So this is the song Let Me Go yeah. off Emotional Rescue. The um, tempo is like, you know, the other song that they argue about tempos all the time is Tumbling Dice. This is, you know, apparently they're like, you know, it took them several hundred tries to get it right. Keith was there all night long in the basement in France until he got it right. And he always says it's very, very specific where this song lives. Too slow and it drags, too fast and it sounds like a rock song. And that's not what it's supposed to be. And when you hear them live, I think, I understand they fought for years making Keith because Mick always wants to play a little faster and, you know, pump it up for the live audiences. And Keith's like, that's not really where the song lives if you listen to the original it's very very specific some of the songs where the tempo lives and that's a i think another lesson you know from this you know it's like give me shelter too you speed it up it just it doesn't doesn't have the same you know it's it's not it's, it's not threatening enough if you speed it up exactly you know? um, all right let me go you're gonna get it straight from the shoulder can't you see the heart so 
so good. Yeah, that, uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, that's just a magic touch. I mean, it, you know, in the hands of like, you know, the, the band from down the street, it's just gonna, it's not gonna swing like that. It just got this, you know, this incredible vibration to it where it just moves along so easily in those little turnarounds, up and the way he backs up the singer, you know, on, on a little let parts let me go. And mm -hmm. it's a pretty nasty song, you know, when you know if you really listen to it, you know, it's but you, the drums are carrying that along. I mean, I remember playing uh, you know, the song Let It Bleed in, in this in this band. I was I was playing piano one night. I kind of talked my way into this gig because I guess I guess I thought there would be some chicks there, you know, and some beer and stuff. <laughs> and I kind of talked my way into being in this band. And uh they were playing Let It Bleed. And it was like it was just like they were playing it too fast. The guy wanted to play a really long guitar solo. I'm like, oh my God, this is not what this song is about. It's this really sleazy country song. You know, and they're like, well, we're not really sleazy country artists, Mike. And I'm like, well, neither was Charlie fucking Watts. I didn't stop him from making it sound right. You know, you can, <laughs> open up your heart, open up your mind. This is what it's about. It's oddly authentic and authenticity is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. But when they do it right, the song before I was talking about was Far Away Eyes, right? Uh, on Some Girls, which I think is such a terrible song because it, makes, it sounds like they're making fun of country music, not celebrating it. It sounds like a novelty song. And Mick Jagger is too good to have to imitate anybody at this point. I mean, he may have started out that way, but when he imitates, you know, he puts on this Southern accent. I mean, it's kind of a bit of a minstrel show, you know? It's like, you don't have to, he doesn't have to do that, you know? It's like, that's why Blue and Lonesome is so good because you finally get the Mick Jagger you wanted all these years where he's just, being the great blues singer that he became. He's being, you know, he's so good at what he does and he's such a good harmonica player. And and he's also an amazing lyricist or has been, but you know, I think he's convinced that he's got to give you the Mick Jagger that he thinks that you want based on, uh, I don't know, all the lights and the glamor and the glitter, you know, and, and all the trappings of being the world's greatest rock star. But man, when he settles, settles into it, and it, it, he's the best. Yeah. Well, that that uh, recording of "Let Me Go," I mean, he kind of sounds a little more subdued for for Mick. It seems like he's he's. It doesn't seem like he's trying to be over the top in that recording that we just listened right. to. Yeah, when this played at that tempo, they they kept that song in the set on and off. You know, when you hear it played at the right tempo, it, it, it's just this. Oh my God, the Rolling Stones are this great country band, and you know that's the thing: country, blues punk rock, rock and roll, it's all the same shit. You know, the Stones had that figured out, you know, a long time ago. It's all coming from the same place. They're all drinking from the same fountain. You know, Elvis Presley knew it. He could play country and turn it into rockabilly. And, you know, even by the time he was doing these like, you know, big Vegas shows, it was very, you know, very, you know, the core of it, you know, is this very hard kernel of truth that they're all trying to get at. You know, and it may, you know, and it may be the hard candy center may be covered with some gooey you know, stuff, you know, before you get to it. But they know the country, the, the blues, when you listen to Whip Comes Down and Respectable, their most aggressive songs, uh, you know, Give Me Shelter. I mean, you know, other songs, I mean, they're, they're blues songs. It's, it's the same shit, you know, no matter what the Ramones might tell you, it is really, it's right there. There's not a lot of syncopation in the Ramones. I mean, I think, you know, any boogie riff would have like destroyed the whole thing they're, they're going for, but it definitely swings. You know, and for the guitar players out there, you know, whoever, it, there are definitely like a lot of one, four, five patterns, you know, same as the Beatles were, you know, and were doing for, for years, the same thing that are the roots of the blues, you know, I mean, it's there. That's where it begins and ends. Mm hmm. Uh, and before we move on to the the next record, you did say the honorable mention uh, for for this album is She's So Cold as well. Oh. I love the intro because also all these songs have those great intros. And how do you dig the snare drum sound on uh, Let Me Go? That really like 
cock. It, yeah. It's, you know, it's really quite raw, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it sits well in the mix, but it's wow. You know, it sounds it reminds me of like uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, you know, his old Motown things. And I heard they used uh, like some chains like you use on snow tires to back up her snare drum on like um, uh, uh, Let's Dance or that other uh, other hit she had. You know, it's just such a great sound. It, it's fantastic. It's not 80s. It's not that fat overgated sound that became popular later and yeah. i guess that was a bit after that but you know it really just sounds wide open it's, it's it's terrific so yeah this has got you know there's another could have been like a toss-off song she's so she's so cold right yep and but check out the china symbol prominently on the intro and that little that little tattoo flip pop boop thing that charlie does that anybody else would have been fired on the spot for <laughs> yeah all right let's go ahead and play it Even Charlie, when he's doing a four on the floor, it still sounds... <laughs> I mean, he's playing, besides the little hi-hat stuff he's doing, he's playing what you would show a drum student on the second day of learning the instrument, but it still sounds like the coolest drum beat ever. It's it, another, The tempo is amazing. It swings. Yeah. It really swings. Uh, and what is that? Is that a country song? Is it a new wave song? Is it a pop rock song? You know, it just sort of sits in this nice place and you could definitely dance to it, but it's not fast. And that little at the beginning, you know, I mean, you know, every other recording engineer in the world is like, well, well, hold it, hold it, stop the tape, do that again, do that again. You know, I, I've had some very famous session drummers tell me they, they were in awe, like in a good way. They, like if I played like that, I, I would no one I'd get fired. Like no one let me play like that. And not saying in any criticism, but rather in awe, because Charlie has created this environment that where he can play something that's off kilter and you know comes in in this unanticipated, like kind of unprecedented, you know, especially for a professional rock and roll record of the 1970s way. And it's you know it's a feature, not a bug, right? Is that what they say? Um, and it's it's kind of like it signals that you are about to hear the Rolling Stones which is so hard to do as a drummer, right? I mean, yeah, Mick starts, you know, doing his thing. Oh, yeah, it's the Stones. You know, Robert Plant starts singing like, okay, it's Led Zeppelin, but Led Zeppelin too. Boy, you hear that sound. I mean, Jimmy Page knew how to record the drums, you know, as well as John Bonham knew how to play them. And you know instantly what band you're listening to. Very few bands have ever, ever achieved a signature sound that was like rooted in the snare drum and the bass drum, the way the Stones and Led Zeppelin, you know, one or two others, maybe, you know, certainly, you know, a Motown record when you hear it, but uh, it's an incredible accomplishment. Do you think that Charlie, and maybe you've had discussions with this, I don't know, but like when he would do that, and then he'd go back in the, because uh, there's also another drum intro, I think it's uh, on the Commit a Crime we're going to listen to, that's kind of Oh my God. I don't want to say it's I don't want to say it's off or whatever. Just it's 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 definitely something you're like, oh, okay, that's the intro. Cool. 
when he when they're sitting back in the control room, was 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 Charlie the kind of person to be like, can we redo that? Or do you think it was Keith going like, no, dude, that's perfect, keep it? Or do you think Charlie's like, hell yeah, I love the authenticity? I don't think Charlie says like, hey, I think Charlie says that's good, that's a keeper, you know, let's let's move on. I think he's really confident in what he's doing, and I think Keith is definitely saying, oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, I, I wonder like, you know, are there like twenty other versions? Like, they're like, okay, let's see if we can even that out or something, sort that out, and then they come out completely fucked up in 20 other ways that are equally as magical, you know, and equally as wonderful and like equally like, like, oh my God, you've reinvented cubism, you know, <laughs> what, whatever, like, this is like magic. I'd love to hear that reel of just like, you know, outtakes of those little intros. 100%. Um, and, you know, uh, but you're hearing it on all these songs. So even as they go on and they're starting to make some you know, pretty dismal records, and let's be honest, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody like sitting around listening to Dirty Works or, I mean, you know, Steel Wheels has, has its moments, certainly, you know, but they're becoming more and more uneven as it goes along. Um, Bigger Bang, their last studio record of, of uh, originals is, I don't know, you know, it's, it's not without its moments, but, you know, so it's a little undisciplined. It's a little bit too much. Feels like the Rolling Stones make things he you, you want to hear, not the record that Keith wants to make mm. per se. You know, and, and it suffers for it. But the first note of the record, the first thing you hear is this like unbelievable snare drum, you know, roll. You know, it's like holy shit, it's the Rolling Stones. You know, you know, with a big open chord from Keith. You know, and maybe the slide guitar comes in behind it. It's like, oh yeah, okay, this is great. You know, yeah. it kind of pees out after that, unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> uh, well, speaking you know, of dirty work, the next. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I was just saying, I don't know what you can expect for guys to have like an, uh, you know, a run of records where everything's so consistent. It's, uh, you know, I mean, maybe they'd be better off just. I mean, Mick always wants to make a dance record or a pop record or, or this, and Keith's like, let's play roots music, whether it's reggae or blues or rockabilly or so, you know, or some variant thereof. And you know, didn't want like you know, mix. Oh, let's get this. You know, producer. He's really trendy. He's got a big hit, and you know, let's invite you know this pop star to sing with us. And I don't think Keith's really you know gives a fuck about like you know about that. And mix always trying to stay you know chasing trends, which is always kills them. When they tried to do you know their own Sergeant Pepper, it was a disaster. You know, Satanic Majesty has a few moments, but I think they all hate that record. They're, they're better when they're being themselves, not trying to chase trends. You know, the, the Rolling Stones should be the ones people are following. That's the way it's, that's the way, that's the natural order of things. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, speaking, speaking of dirty, dirty work. work, though, let's, let's move on to um, a, a, a track from that record, which is uh, Had It With You. Um, and yeah, so what's, what's kind of the backstory on that one? Why'd you choose that one? This is such an oddball track. Uh, I think, you know, I'm going on a limb uh and hopefully uh what we'll hear from listeners and people you know say say mike's out of his mind or, or oh yeah or uh this song is not, their whole record is like really beefed up and sounds very corporate you know um uh you know i in, in sympathy for the drummer i said it sounds like the soundtrack to one of the later rocky movies you know i think the first song is called fight there's like one hit to the body you know <laughs> a lot of these boxing metaphors going on and the whole thing is just kind of yeah, I mean, they weren't really in the same place at the same time, and it's very produced, not quite organic, except for this song, which is clearly like four of them on the floor at the same time playing this completely nasty song, which I think was very personal between Mick and Keith. It's called Had It With You. Uh, the first line is, had it, dirty fucker. You know, it's like, it's really, they're not getting along at all. Uh, the song has no bass on it. They don't even bother to put out a bass track. It's very, very punk rock and raw. It sounds more like, you know, like like the Gories or the John Spencer Blues Explosion or the Oblivions or, or, or one of these like kind of 
you know, post-punk blues, you know, bands that uh, I, I love so much, but, you know, not really, it's so far out of, you know, the, the, the corporate mainstream sound of a professional major label release. And, and this is it. It's just nasty. And again, starts off with the impossible Charlie Watts intro, the China symbol, and he's naked. There's no bass on here, you know, and it just, and it breaks down. We just stick with it till I get to the breakdown. Cause it's just, you know, I they couldn't have done this more than more than once. It just sounds like it has that feeling to it. And how it got through, you know, how it got by those suits, I'll never know. But it's this is this is right on, man. This is really righteous. Speaking of suits, check out the 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 cover, the album cover of this album. It's oh, them in these like nineties bright colors. It's like they all look miserable in the photo. <laughs> oh god, it was horrifying. You know, you know, when it came out, it was like, oh my god. I mean, it really was scary when it came out. I remember like, you know, because the Rolling Stones you know, when some girls came out, okay, this is weird. It's got, you know, it had like a die cut thing and all these women in the play. This is, it's weird. It's art. And they created something. It's a weird follow up to everything they've been doing, which is getting weirder and weirder. And tattoo you, the tattoos and the insert with a goat. Like, okay, this is weird. And it's kind of kinky and sexy. And I can't really quite put my finger on it. There's a little bit of a darkness to it. You know, it's very cool, you know, and, and emotional rescue had its own thing going on. They were doing the thermal imaging. It came as a giant poster. Okay. The art, was cool and then all of a sudden like this explosion of like they look like they're playing at a new wave tennis club you know yeah. it's like oh my god what's happened obsessed on that because it's, he's so naked charlie and you know how it is and you know we've all played in you know uh punk bands or hard rock bands or rock and roll you know you know whatever it is like just to keep something like that so steady and not lose momentum mm -hmm. and then to do it without like a bass or like you know you know someone really pushing it over the top it, it's again it's just 
swings and is very confident. I mean, there's just a swagger to the whole thing that's just impossible to cop. It's a, you know, and then of course, that, you know, you know, with the trash symbols, like, wow, you know, what did he just do? What just happened there? You know, what's funny is this makes me start to think like, I need to not put bass on every song. I didn't miss it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I get, you know, I play in ba- ba- bassless bands a lot. You know, these kind of like, like you said, bands like the Oblivions and the uh, Blues Explosion and Post Cramps, if uh, you know, you got any punk rockers in the audience, kind of doing this thing. The White Stripes certainly, you know, did, did it, you know, you know, later on to great success. Um, and, I, and I ran my band, the Edison Rocket Train, without a bass for a long time. Uh, and I, in fact, because I was playing rhythm guitar, but I, in effect, became the bass player. I mean, it was very much like a Bo Diddley thing I was working on, where you know you're cold, you're holding the song together, um, and and that's it. You got to be dedicated to rhythm. You know, listen, no one dances to the guitar solo. That's the other lesson to be learned from all of this, right? I mean, it starts on the floor, right? And it, you know, it comes you know from your heart and not your hands. But uh, these are the lessons, you know, and that's hopefully what I'm sharing in sympathy for the drummer. And that's why I wrote the book, because, yeah, it is amazing. I really do like sitting back on the drums and, and, and blasting away and seeing you know, how many permutations of power diddles I can do around the kit. And it's really fun. But uh, practical application is pretty uh, limited, you know. Um, you know, I mean, it's cool. It's fun. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of things are fun. They're far fun. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, once you get to the. You know, the band, the bandstand, I mean, responsibility is to the other guys and to the audience and to the music and to the song, you know, and not just to see, like, how many flamadiddles you can do backwards on your rototoms. But that's why I chose these songs, because they were kind of, like, in many ways, the most simplest. They're things Charlie Watts does that are more complex, that are cool. Um, on my website, MikeEdison.com, there are playlists, there are Spotify playlists that cover all my favorite things. There's a whole thing. It's called Charlie Takes Over, and it's live from, like, 1965 up to about 1978. And... Oh my God. I mean, he's doing such crazy things. on love you live, which I think is a very underrated record too. It's like everything you ever needed to know about rock and roll drumming is on that record. Mm-hmm. Like everything, you know, from, from the, from the big dance songs to just like slamming the living shit out of jumping Jack flash. It's like, it, it's all there. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reason why I love hosting this podcast is because it's all about choices for me, you know, like, uh, I just to kind of repeat what you just right. said. I mean, growing up, I was always about what I could do, you know, what circus tricks I could do. And there are places for that. And I've had, you know, a lot of good guests come on that have kind of countered my reasoning for being on my little soapbox on why you shouldn't have to, you know, practice those. And I agree with all those drummers. Um, uh, Mark Stepro especially had a really good point on that. But when it comes to choices, uh, that's what turns me on. With with Charlie Watts, you, there's never a point in a song where you're like, I bet I know what he's going to do for the rest of the song. He's already introduced enough motifs. It's like, no, Charlie could just be holding it down, but he, there's still a chance on nine tenths of the way through the song, he's going to do something that you're like, I would. You have to listen to the whole song because he's such he a just, storyteller. Right, and he's exactly, and he's there's a, there's a narrative of the song, but he could just be swinging. The, the story might just be, hey, let's dance, let's dance, and let's hopefully, you know, boys and girls or boys and boys and girls and girls will all rub up against each other, yeah. and someone's going to go home with someone else. That's the story. But that is kind of the idea of this dance music, you know, is that it is going to get sweaty and people are going to sweat on each other, and that's it. And you know, listen. I, Charlie Watts worships Max Roach and he loves all these big band drummers and and you know pound for pound I'm thinking Elvin Jones is probably the greatest drummer I've ever heard or, or seen but it doesn't really influence this in any real real way it's just a different way I mean there are many good ways to play music there are many good ways to play the drums there are many wonderful ways to play the guitar not everybody has to play like Jimi Hendrix we need Johnny Ramone too 
uh, you know, it's very important. And, um, you know, I, 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 aside from writing books, I edit books and I worked with a very famous jazz guitar player one time and he said, oh, Mike, you know, I'm excited because, uh, you know, the publisher told me that you're a musician and you play and, you know, it's really good because to have a musician working on a book with another musician doesn't always happen. You know, so who's your favorite guitar player? And I said, Bo Diddley. And he went, ah, no, really, Mike, who's your favorite guitar player? And it's this like snobbery of like what is or what isn't, you know, this elitist level of music that Charlie Watts did not subscribe to. Mm. You know, he knew that that this blues, this primitive music was jazz and elegant and nuanced, as was Max Roach, who was one of his heroes and one of all of our heroes, I'm pretty sure. You know, I mean, I mean, of course, of course, but it doesn't really apply, you know, when you're playing, you know, Brown Sugar. It's a, it's a different thing. Thank God Charlie Watts knew how to color a little bit outside the lines and, you know, and to shade and color his dynamics. But he's a good example of why, you know, the box of crayons with the five colors is often a lot better than the one with, you know, the 64 or the 128, you know, too many choices is, is also a problem. So um, let's let's move to uh, the record you had mentioned earlier, which is one of their most recent records um, is uh, Blue and Lonesome oh, and yes. the song Commit a Crime. Um, so yeah, why'd you, why'd you choose this one? Then we can, we can check it out. All right. Well, we can ride out on this. Uh, so this is as back to basics as it gets back to basics being one of the most bullshit industry, music industry cliches of all time. They're getting back to their roots. But in this case, it's very true. They're doing really what they do best. And someone said, oh yeah, you know, it's going to sound like one of their early records. And it, it doesn't because since they started playing Jimmy Reed covers and Bo Diddley covers and Muddy Waters and, uh, uh, Slim Harpo and all these other things, uh, in 1965, they've spent a year being, you know, 50 years playing a band. They spent a lifetime, that's what I want to say, uh, getting really fucking good at it. You know, they're no longer just a talented cover band. They are now straight up you know, blues men. You know, they've been on the road. They've seen murder. They've seen every possible imaginable thing that humans can experience has, has happened, you know, you know, in the eyes of the Rolling Stones. Like the end of Blade Runner, where he says, you people would not believe these things my eyes have seen. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, that's the experience of being in the Rolling Stones. Of course, Charlie Watts was a witness to it all. You know, he had the best seat in the house, you know. For I mean, a lot of shit, album. yeah, not just on like, stage. You know, he's hanging out with like the world's most famous junkie and you know, Mick Jagger and every and all of their fucking friends. You know, you know, I mean, holy cow. Anyway, this is one chord, the song. They don't go to the fourth. They don't go to the fifth. There are no changes. It's just this completely hypnotic trance, like one chord. You know, meditation. You know, uh, you know, on it's called committed crime and it's nasty and. Uh, Two things that are really noteworthy in the song, besides the fact that it's just like so hard to play this music effectively and convincingly, is about two thirds of the way through the song. I mean, the dynamics shift. I mean, he starts with the shuffle. You can definitely hear him uh, not hitting the hi hat with the snare drum. It's cool. There's a breath in there, just like Earl Phillips used to do. It's kind of hard to fathom exactly where it is. But later at the end, he just starts wanging the living shit out of the China symbol, which is unprecedented for a Chicago blues record. And yet in his hands, it sounds completely authentic. It seems completely correct. Uh, it's very, very right. And the other thing is, of all the kooky drum intros you know, that we've talked about today, this one is like, wow, because it yeah. comes in and it sounds like it's going to be like a, like a like a more straighter eighth notes you know you know and it's kind of morphs into the shuffle right away and there's a second where it lives in that weird netherland that's neither a shuffle or a straight beat you know it's like kind of time stops for a second uh you know i mean you could listen to the first you know four seconds of this over and over again on a loop and you know i'll probably be very happy for the rest of my life <laughs> yeah but, uh, i but love yeah, it you know you know this uh you got into the idea people get the idea that playing the blues is easy and, and it's not all right commit a crime 
You know, some people are listening or maybe, you know, had this idea that, you know, maybe a one chord song like that, you know, like, you know, you know, maybe want to go back to working on Tom Sawyer or whatever. Understand that this is, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, that this is very, very challenging music to play and and, and very, very difficult to, to put it over like this without being monotonous, without being boring, with keeping it swing, with keeping it sexy, with making me you know, feel kind of greasy and sexy and dirty and all those things that come along with it. It's, you know, it's not just this riff. It's like a lifetime of experiences going going behind this riff, you know, and you can sort of feel it. And, and you know, and I take back all the nasty things I said about Mick Jagger. God damn, he sounds good on that record, right? I mean, that's it. <laughs> but, you know, you got to take the ugly so that the better looks better. If the... <laughs> I'm not a wordsmith like you, so i got to leave that sentence in there, though. I do want to uh, finish off with a song that you suggested we listen to, and I think that that is a great way to end this, uh, this episode with just Charlie being Charlie and it's rough justice um, from the album A Bigger Bang. And that just has all his fun little hi-hat things, the intro, the snare sounds massive oh on my god song. it's so loud it's, it's so loud it's so i think good. they realized they said like holy shit you know we're, here we are this late part of our career and you, you know we have you know some good stonesisms that we can always throw down you know and but they're kind of a little bit of drift and the record the album you know as a whole doesn't have his focus but like okay let's just turn charlie up because when everybody hears the snare drum they're gonna know and we're yeah. gonna make this here this is the first thing people hear and by the way increasingly if you look at this in the voodoo lounge like the first three songs it all begins with the snare drum it's like they just the whole group started to realize that this is where it's coming from you know it's coming from the guy behind the drums and it's a it's a huge thing i mean you've worked in you know million rock bands and seen a million rock bands and we all have and for the band as a group to collectively like shift focus in that direction you know for a guy who's playing you know a humble set of drums i mean he's not like a visual focus like neil Peart or keith moon you know it's, it's a different thing it's like and yet to really get the zen of what's happening here i mean that's it sympathy for the drummer baby they, they, they get it and this is a good song too where like i don't know i mean you can kind of hear his hi-hat but if you're not if you're not listening to that intently 
you don't really know where the one is until Charlie comes in, which right. I love those kind of songs. Yeah, he's got to catch up to Keith. That's always part of the thing, too. He sometimes he gets sometimes he's like he rushes it before the song even starts, you know, or Keith starts it. He's got to catch up or Keith gets ahead. I mean, I mean, Keith's a very important part of this rhythm section, too. And that's also part of the Stones thing is that it's really the rhythm guitar and the drummer it's not like in, it's, they're not a pocket band it's not you know like led zeppelin was much more in the pocket the meters obviously or you know the, the greatest example you know you know a lot of bands you know solo motown bands this is not that thing they are definitely there's a there, there's some forward momentum between them and bill wyman uh who was gone by this point but i mean he's the most underrated guy in like the history of the sport i mean to try to center everything it, it was a tough job and that's why it swings so much and that's why they have a sound you know like I said, it's the, the Rolling Stones, not the Rocking Stones. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, here you go. Rough Justice. drum is so loud it's so awesome <laughs> and it sounds so good it's not just loud it's just like it's the perfect yeah attack to to to, to overtone to, yeah it's it's great it's great it, it's raw it, it, it totally is uh you know and also you know and it's you know if you're playing along if you're air drumming along like i just was of course i came in before charlie because i thought oh here's a place for a little fill or something and of course he holds off just a little bit longer you know, and, you know, it comes in on like the, the end of two and not, you know, or, or, or whatever, where I'm not expecting it, you know, or or the end of three just to lead it into the one versus like starting it on the two, like, you know, a you know normal person would. It's, it's you know, it, it's great. It's that it's that anticipation thing, you know, you know, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's 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 cool. You know, yeah, you know it's, it ain't the notes you play. It's the notes you don't play. You know, 100%. it's important. The reason why I, I feel feel a lot of uh, responsibility with this episode is it, it's I, I, you know, a lot of times once someone passes away, that's when a lot of people start listening to their stuff. And it's it's very unfortunate. But uh, we were obviously going to talk before Charlie Watts passed away. Um, and so I hope more people listen to this episode now and go down his his or the rabbit hole of the Rolling Stones. And again, you've referenced uh, in other episodes, on other podcasts. He has jazz solo records. It's not just the Rolling Stones. He he was a working drummer. You know, he had a lot. He worked with a lot of people, a lot of solo records and stuff. That go ahead, yeah. That, that, that's important. You said a working drummer. You know, even when he was in the Rolling Stones, he you know had a jazz band and he played in small clubs with his jazz band not in his rock band his rock and roll band because he already had played in the best one you know but the idea of a working drummer is a fantastic thing you know i mean the guy loved playing the drums that's really evident in all of us the guy loved to play the drums it wasn't just something that he learned and you know now he ends up in his legacy band and you know gets him out of the house you know uh, on sundays it's not that kind of thing the guy loved music he loved playing 
the, the drums and it's very very obvious and you know and also i want to say like you know yeah I, we were going to talk about this before charlie watts died and that was like didn't see that coming it's not the way this was supposed to happen but um it is a reminder that i wrote this book also from a place of love i love to play the drums i love music you know and this was not a reaction this book to him dying you know this is a reaction to you know, you know him living into you know in the in the last 50 years of him playing music that i that i made me so happy but he added so much value in and the rolling stones, the rolling stones to my life and trying to go down you know you know this path and decipher where this was coming from and why it swings and you know and you know, all these weird things where time seems to stop you know which uh is counterintuitive if the idea is to swing right but it's like oh what is going on here that's why this book was written it wasn't because like hey here's an opportunity this was like in fact i was told not to write this book by a couple of people because they didn't think it, it would sell enough they said no one could give a shit about the drummer mm. like i was actually told that by a couple of publishing professionals and i said you know what no i'm gonna write i'm at the point in my life where i write what i want to write I, i'm a working writer Right. So I sometimes like a working drummer, you take the gigs you can get. But this is like, you know, this is the book I want to write. This is the book that's in my heart. This is the book that's in my soul. And this is the book that's in my gut. And I'm going to get it out. And, you know, thanks to my friends at Backbeat Books, who uh, did a really nice job to make it a very lovely edition and worked with me to design the book. So it was worthy of its subject and not just a, you know, trashy looking, you know, rock book i mean it was very important to me that it looked nice and felt nice in your hands as well so it's got a good sound too I mean, later we can compare the paperback versus the hardcover i think the hardcover is probably better for on the gig but uh, sure yeah but the paperback is better for the plane plane ride um but yeah all those things this was an act of love this book not a reaction to anything it was you know it was very organic from that and i'm really flattered and humbled that so many people liked it and got it and you know I didn't pull any punches, you know, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, got punched on the nose in this book, you know, uh, but, you know, the idea isn't to put people down, it's to elevate the whole, whole, whole thing. Well, I think for the same reason that, that Charlie Watts' love for his authenticity, I think what you write, how you wrote about everyone in the book, uh, it's an, it's endearing and you can tell it comes from a place of adoration, which is why you can be like, this wasn't that good because I know you guys are so amazing at what you do. So to acknowledge that sometimes they weren't at their best, that's that's actually the sign of a good friend and someone who loves a thing. Um, so it didn't come across as you bashing anyone. I agree with a lot of the points you make. So, <laughs> And I'll even say I, I agree with what you said about the doors. So if anyone wants to go yelling at Mike, uh, read the book, see what he says, and uh, we can have a talk about it as well. So... <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Uh, I really, you know, I dig this podcast, and I know this is a little bit a uh, change of format, a little bit. But man, I love better it. than talking drums with people who, who get it and love it and care. And always support your local independent bookseller. Amen to that, man. All right, well, Mike, uh, thank you so much, man. I this was such a blast, and uh, I look forward to finishing the book. So, um, thanks again, man. This is why I wrote it, so I can talk to you, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right, see you, dude. See you. <laughs> And that's the show. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger. And hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 audio editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at isotope.com. Bye.